today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Organifi. I continue to use their products. I think it's been six years now, something like that. I like to use greens on a daily basis. I mix in my reds. If you're not already using a high-quality greens product, head over to Organifi.com right now and use their incredible greens product. It's a blend of superfoods, all organic, tastes just delicious. And when you add in a REDS formula, gents, you're getting what you need to support nitric oxide production, ultimately help your heart work effectively, your vascular system work effectively, ultimately can help erectile function as well. Not already using the REDS and the greens, go that now, Organifi.com, and use the code MUSCLE. They get hooked up with 20% off. And while you're over there, you can check out their incredible vegan protein as well. They have an incredible Organifi Gold and so many other amazing products that you should absolutely check out for yourself and your family. Keep yourself healthy. Take care of yourself. Let's all work hard together and maintain the standard of excellence across the world. Thanks for being here. To really just understand what foods and what lifestyle combinations are best for keeping their blood sugar more stable um, and in a tighter range, which we know is uh, associated with better health outcomes over time. We want to reduce those up and down swings in glucose to a more gentle rolling hills within a narrow range uh, in order to reduce glycemic variability, which we know is associated with risk of future chronic diseases and also impacts our day-to-day function. When that glucose is swinging way high and way low, it can lead to energy crashes. It can lead to cravings. It can lead to fatigue. It can even lead to like mood instability throughout the day and anxiety. And so keeping that glucose more stable by understanding this feedback loop not only helps with our our day-to-day life, but also with that long-term risk profile, while also giving us this personal understanding about our bodies that is really empowering and sort of subverts the system, the healthcare system that really wants to keep your data separate from you um, in a way that largely benefits the healthcare industry, but not so much uh, individuals. Yeah. And so first I'll say that I think a CGM does a lot more than just tying your food to your health. I think it's doing it's tying your stress to your health, your sleep to your health, and you're able to see how these, as you say, lifestyle, uh, whether it be interventions or effects, influence how your body's metabolism. And so let's rewind for a second. I'd love to hear your definition of what metabolism is. Um, and then I'll we'll, we'll shift into the idea of metabolic health because um, I think that's ultimately the question, as you say, we're trying to solve here is like, how do we help people be more metabolically effective, metabolically healthy? And so first, how would you define metabolism? So metabolism is the set of all the chemical reactions of the body that convert food to cellular energy. So we take in all these different chemical substrates into the body through food. We eat about 70 metric tons of food across our lifetime. And really one of the purposes of this food is to be transformed into a a currency of energy that our cells can use to power every single reaction in the body. Our whole life, our whole lived experience, our whole perception of the world is just the bubbling up of all these chemical reactions that are happening in our 40 plus trillion cells. And every single one of those is powered by cellular energy, which of course um, is ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, this, this coin you know that we use to pay for every one of the many trillions of reactions that are happening every second in our bodies that bubbles up into our lives. So metabolism is, it is our animating life force. It is our, it is our literal life force. Um, and, you know, as we know, as we talked about just a minute ago, right now, metabolism is totally under siege in the modern Western world. Uh, the majority of Americans have a metabolic problem. We're actually having trouble with making energy in the body, which is foundational to all health. So what's so interesting about about health right now is that we have so many chronic diseases that we're sort of talking about and dealing with, many of which I mentioned earlier, but underneath all of them, what we're learning more and more is a fundamental problem with how our cells are powered. And so we treat in our Western medical system, all these diseases as different silos, as if they're different things. But now with the research that's happened over the past five, 10 years, with whole genome sequencing and metabolomics and all these more high throughput um, sort of aspects of, of research that let us see the systems biology perspective, how things are connected on the cellular level. We're actually seeing that so many diseases are actually fundamentally the same, 
But the key thing here, though, is that you can have the same process, metabolic dysfunction, happening in different cell types, and that can look like a different disease. So something, a metabolic problem that's happening in a liver cell could look like fatty liver disease. If it's happening in an ovary, it could look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, the leading cause of infertility. If it's happening in different parts of the brain, it could look like fibromyalgia, migraines, depression, anxiety, ADHD, or Alzheimer's dementia, all of which have a metabolic root. Uh, if it's happening in blood vessels, it could look like stroke, heart disease, erectile dysfunction, or retinopathy, all diseases of problems with blood flow. And so essentially, I think the real framing that people need to understand is that metabolism is how we make energy in the body from food. Metabolism right now is broken in the average American body and that is the root cause of almost every chronic symptom and disease we're facing today. Not because those things are different diseases or symptoms, but because they're actually rooted in the same problem showing up in different cell types. Yeah. And the reason I say that I think it does so much more than just tie our food to our, to our health is because through all of what you said there, the common thread is nutrition is not a food problem. Nutrition ultimately is a behavior problem. And when you put someone who's hungry, and I've heard someone say this recently on, on Instagram, I'll use this reference, is some, someone says, if you don't want, you're not willing to eat a bowl full of cauliflower and broccoli, you're not really hungry. I'm like, well, that's just not logical or sensical. If you put a bowl, bowl of broccoli and cauliflower in front of someone, and you put a bowl of ice cream in front of someone, there, 99% of humans are going to choose the high calorie dense foods. So it's a behavior choice. It's a, it's a problem in the behavior. And what I love about CGMs and specifically levels is you're getting an immediate feedback loop. So I can see when I eat broccoli, my glucose is flat. When I eat ice cream, my glucose does crazy things. And then I can immediately start to feel like, oh, when I do that, I feel this way. An hour later, I feel this way. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. And I think there's there's a lot to be you know, carried down the line as well as this metabolic health conversation. Like metabolic health ultimately, as you're saying, is, is probably just or, or the absence of metabolic health is often the, the result of lack of um, physical competency, so lack of exercise and movement, and then probably an excess of calories across the board, right? And the combination of the two. Um, so what ultimately I find that levels and, and similar devices are doing is they're, they're giving us immediate real-time feedback to change our behavior. And I'm curious if you if you feel that I'm, that I'm correct in saying that nutrition is more of a behavior problem and what levels is ultimately doing is solving this behavior problem, helping us solve the behavior problem. Mm. I think absolutely. I mean, I think we're living in a really challenging time right now in terms of our food culture where- Everywhere. Everywhere, right? Where unfortunately the foods that are most widely accessible, most highly marketed and cheapest are the foods that are most damaging to our health. And so yeah. Hype, yeah, hyper palatable food scientists creating, you know, bliss point foods. Frankenstein foods, yeah. Franken foods. And then of course- the federal government is subsidizing the production of these foods through several mechanisms, the production and actually also accessibility. Uh, one, by the farm bills, which preferentially support crops that go into processed foods. So um, corn, soy, uh, wheat that get, of course, turned into like high fructose corn syrup and ultra processed grains, which are going to create metabolic dysfunction. They also sponsor this by, of course, federally funding the U.S. the school lunch program which is the largest, school lunches are the largest fast food chain in, in the country, essentially. And they're serving pro ultra processed foods, 3 billion meals per year to kids. You've got the federal government subsidizing food assistance support programs like SNAP and WIC, um, which the uh, huge percentage of but the top line item on those programs is soda. So we're basically federally subsidizing a huge portion of like Coke's uh, yearly revenue through taxpayer dollars, which is of course disproportionately mm -hmm. hurting minorities and people of color who die many years earlier, be, and, and this is largely related to food. So there's a lot of systems issues at play. Those are just three of many. I mean, 95% of the people on the USDA's Food Guidelines Committee in the US had conflicts of interest with food industry. So on the systems level, like we could have an entire conversation about why we're set up for failure. And of course, at levels, and personally, we're working on how to bring awareness to a lot of those issues because fundamentally we're going to have to change policy to make it a better system where it's easier and cheaper to buy healthy food as opposed to unhealthy food. It's not 
it's very much a fallacy to think that healthy food is more expensive inherently than unhealthy food. It's actually just the way it's set up uh, with the financing of these production of these foods that makes them cheaper. So that all needs to get sorted out. But in the meantime, one of our core beliefs is that people who understand that feedback loop between the food they're eating uh, and then what's happening to their body and can actually see that like for their own body over the course of an hour, you know, I had this meal and I had this reaction, it's monumentally powerful. Like you could have 50 people tell you not to eat Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast and that eggs and avocado and spinach would be a better option. But until you see your glucose going up 120 points in 15 minutes and then crashing down 45 minutes later, leaving you feeling lethargic and tired and anxious and have more cravings for sugar, like there's nothing that compares to that to seeing your body generate sort of that motivating information. So I think the behavior change element is massive. I also think there's a real power in generating body awareness. Um, a lot of the ways that we produce processed foods is actually to almost have this like dissociative experience between the body and the food. Like it, it hijacks our brain to basically just make us want more. It's high fructose corn syrup. One of the reasons it's so deadly is because um, when fructose is metabolized and for, and of course this is in like 70% of like foods on the packaged foods on the shelves in grocery stores, it's this drug that was invented in the 1970s that actually hijacks our hunger signals and makes us want to eat more as we eat more of the food. So it's the opposite of what our natural body cues would say, which is like, oh, I've gotten my caloric load. I need to, I can stop eating now. Fructose is the opposite. It's a feed forward mechanism. And the reasons for this are super fascinating. I'll mention just very briefly, uh, as fructose is metabolized, it turns into uric acid and uric acid causes like acute mitochondrial dysfunction and basically makes your cell think that it's starving. And so it drives you to eat more essentially. And the reason for this, if you think about hibernating animals, um, like a bear, for instance, it needs to hibernate for months and it needs to store as much fat as humanly possible. So when the berries are ripe in the late summer, fall, and they're filled with natural fructose, um, the bears will start eating the berries and the biology wants them to eat as many berries as humanly possible, like gavage themselves so that they can store fat for winter for their hibernation that they can then burn throughout the winter. So that fructose actually turns them into violent and like almost crazy so that they outcompete all the other bears to eat as many berries as humanly possible over the course of a short period of time. So that's what's happening in like every American child who's eating sugar is we've now weaponized this natural biologic process for hibernating animals into high fructose corn syrup, put it in every food. And now you've got people just being like driven to eat this stuff. Now, the reason I mentioned that is to get back to a point about behavior change, which is there's this amazing concept called interoception, which is essentially the ability to sense kind of what's going on inside your body. It's kind of a fancy term for body awareness. And the audience will be very familiar with that because I teach it daily. Amazing. Yeah. So interoception, it's powerful. And I think a big part of our health journey out of the chronic disease epidemic is getting more in touch with what we're actually feeling inside at any given time. I know you talk a lot about breath work and like this is another element I think of interoception of like feeling your internal state. Are you anxious? you know, are, is your is your heart beating too, like fast? And then what natural tools do you have at your disposal to basically like in that moment um, positively impact your physiology? And I think that these tools like continuous glucose monitoring are one of the most powerful interoception tools I've ever used or seen used in clinical practice in my personal life and seen in other people using them because you start creating this feedback link between, okay, I ate this thing and then I felt this thing. And then this is what was happening to my glucose to the point where a lot of people after wearing continuous glucose monitors for a couple months or maybe longer start to understand if they're where their glucose is at, even without wearing a CGM. So they have this interoception about what's happening with their blood sugar, even without wearing a continuous glucose monitor, because they've had so many cycles of seeing the data, cueing into how they feel, and then knowing what food generates that. So that gets me really excited um, in terms of body awareness. We also see this with stress on the continuous glucose monitor. A lot of people note that their glucose goes up, spikes really high when they're stressed, like before giving a big presentation at work, uh, before a big performance event, they'll see a huge spike in glucose. And this is very understood physiologically. 
um, when the body releases cortisol and catecholamines, like stress hormones, it tells the liver to essentially dump glycogen into the bloodstream to fuel the muscles to respond to whatever threat is causing that stress. And so, you know, in many cases in the modern Western world, the stress is not actually something you need to run from like a lion. It's just like more of a psychological stress. And so it's a maladaptive response in the modern world, but it, you know, it was well-intentioned through evolution. Yeah. I literally just, I just literally spoke about this the other day, metabolic disconnect, right? So our, our, our body is saying we need to mobilize and do something active and, our, and we're sitting there doing nothing. So the brain is confused. The brain is driving the stress response to, into the body. The body's going, I'm just sitting here. There's a disconnect between kind of the physiological response and the physical response. And it's so that that disconnect is such a key part of, I think, our chronic disease epidemic. I actually, I have a book coming out next year. And a lot of what I talk about is the idea of like, the body is confused right now. Like we're under all this chronic low-grade stress. We're spiking our own glucose because of those stress hormones. Then we're not moving. So that glucose is just sitting in the bloodstream. And you're having to produce all this insulin to bring it into the cells. And then the mitochondria aren't being tasked to do any work. And so they store it as fat. And it's just like, And then it's generating inflammation because we have this hyperglycemia all the time. And it's like, oh my God, our poor bodies. Like if we, if we just like moved them a little bit more and actually got that glucose out of the bloodstream, like they, things would just be so much smoother. But, but that's the type of interoception that I think is so key for behavior change. Because you can tell someone to meditate and do diaphragmatic breathing till you're blue in the face. But until someone sees, oh my God, right before my presentation, my glucose went up 70 points and my heart rate variability dropped a little bit. And then I was able to take three box breaths, maybe way more than that, but like cue into your own tool toolbox of, of stress management and my glucose improved. I mean, that is super powerful. So yeah, I, I think as a behavior change tool, it's, it's revolutionary. And then on top of that, it's making your behavioral interventions more on target. Because I think the thing that frustrates so many people is they've tried everything and nothing's working. And when you can actually cue into what works for your own body, it, it makes the behavioral interventions uh, just more effective. Is there any general guidelines you could throw out to the audience You know, who, who maybe isn't able or willing to do the lab testing on Cyrex and, and see what's going on in their, in their abdominal? Like anything in general, like, hey, do this, don't do this for optimizing gut health. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things I like, like with your consumer food, fish is very easy to digest. If, if I said to you, uh, mince meat, in order that everything to mince meat is beef, you can mince any meat, you can mince turkey, lamb, whatever it is. So the immune system generally, not always, but generally will cause an irritation from a fuel allergy point of view to a protein. So to the protein in chicken or in, in beef or in egg. Uh, eggs or dairy, whatever it may be. So it's very important we have a rotation of your proteins. So if the listeners are out there now, and if I ask them how many different forms of protein they eat on a regular basis, in Ireland, I get chicken, I get beef, and I get whey protein. There has to be more than that. There has to be a multitude of different fish, different animals, game, eggs. And even when you eat eating eggs, eat eggs in a different way, boiled, maybe scrambled, maybe poached. So in order to have good, good health, we need a good food rotation. Second of all, the stuff that you can do, like that 5, 10, 15, 20, to optimize digestion. There is some good research on colostrum or glutamine for rebuilding the gut lining. So your, your, your villi, again, should have lots of, like, lots of villi and top fit and the enzymes come in and absorb it. If you've got a lot of rust, or you've got a lot of villous atrophy or your, your shades, even vegetables can cause an issue. I've got guys that when they eat vegetables or broccoli or, or asparagus, it, it's rusted the gut. And the reason being is it, it's very abrasive to the gut lining. The gut lining is as thick as your eyelid. So it's very sensitive. So it's very important that we get that villi going. The benefit is those enterocytes, those cells in our gut lining, they turn over every four to seven days. So we just remove some foods, support with colostrum or possibly glutamine, the new cells come up, have nice villi, and then we can possibly start to reintroduce those vegetables again. Well, vegetables for some people, I mean, fibrous, cellulosely, like celery, like broccoli, like um, kale, like asparagus, can be very uh, rusted a good lining. So rotate the food, mix up the vegetables, possibly look into the enzymes, I find them very impactful because what they do is, if you can imagine, excuse me, um, Marge Simpson's pair of necklaces, 
big pair of necklaces, loads of pearls in it. When you consume a food, you consume a food in a pair of necklaces. And the job of the body with hydrochloric acid, with the enzymes, is to chop that pair of necklace down into individual pearls. And those pearls can then be absorbed in our body. The problem is, by the time it gets into our small intestine, a lot of people haven't broken it down. It's a macromolecule. It's four or five pearls together. And that can cause inflammation to the body. That can cause leaky gut. That can cause an immune response. But having enzymes, chewing your food, rotating your protein, adding in your enzymes will help those pearls be absorbed and actually get the nutrients from the food. Rotate the protein that you consume. Maybe use some minced meat. Be careful of your vegetables. Glutamine, colostrum, lactoferrin can also be very good. And also I put in some probiotics at the end once people have done that. And that can be very, very helpful. Rotate the food, add enzymes in, look into glutamine. Thanks, Owen. That's super helpful. So one of the things that I've been fascinated with, I've got, I work with guys over 40. So I get a couple of guys who are coming in with cardiac issues. I've been doing a lot of research on the optimal diet for the cardiac, uh, for long-term cardiac health. Some people say, hey man, you got to avoid saturated fat. Some people are, are, are really deep on you know, avoiding cholesterol, bring your cholesterol levels down. Um, any thoughts and insights around uh, one cholesterol, two saturated fat, and its implication on one cardiac health and ultimately just just the whole cholesterol conversation in general? This, this, this is you, John, and this is the thing. Cholesterol is a predictor of coronary heart disease. People think it's number one. It's actually number 14 at the moment. So it's 70%, up to 80% of the cholesterol in your body. You make it. The liver makes it. So why is the body making so much of this? And a very big, you know, stimulator of cholesterol in the body is blood sugar dysregulation. So if your blood sugar is going up and down, that can really cause the body to make a lot of cholesterol. So for me, what I like to do is real food. Processed food in general has no place in people's diets. So when, and, and, and people say, oh, red meat is all the same. Not Red meat is not all the same. It's good quality, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, and organic as much as you can. But for me, I've never had an issue with people. I say to them, okay, Talk to your doctor. Let's do three months of a control, not a no carb, a low carb controlled diet with real meat, with real eggs, real fish, with fish oil in there. We I don't necessarily load them up with saturated fat, but I, as Dr. Serrano said, you you never on earth see a protein without a fat. They're always together. So you get that, you get those two together. So I go for real food. I definitely add in fish oil. I definitely add in vitamin D and magnesium. And in three months' time, we get the bloodstone and the cholesterol is is always down. But there's inflammatory markers going on in people's bodies. Just because the fire brigade is at the fire doesn't mean the fire brigade caused the fire. So cholesterol gets a bad rap. Cholesterol carries hormones around the body. Cholesterol makes up our testosterone, our estrogen, our cortisol. We need it. But this having it in a certain you know parameter isn't the be all and end all. Blood pressure. The calcium score, resting heart rate, sleep, blood sugar, these are other things that can be more impactful. So I like to look at everything, but not consuming cholesterol in food. Cholesterol in food has little, very little impact on cholesterol in our bloodstream, serum cholesterol. Support the liver, control the blood sugar, add in certain nutrients, and that cholesterol will come down. And some people genetically have higher levels of cholesterol. Anyway. So there's a few things you said that I'd love to unpack. So you brought up a calcium score, and I don't know if that's an area that you focus on, but you mentioned it, so I thought it's worth like bringing it up. So that that's a big thing, right? And some people say it's got no correlation with heart attacks. I've heard recently in the most some recent research that it's actually very not very low level correlation with heart attacks. The thing that's more correlated with heart attacks is actually parasympathetic tone. Um, so I'm curious if you have any insights there to you know why that you know I'm sure you know why it starts to happen, but I'm curious if there's any thoughts around hey, what should we be doing? What should we be doing to avoid it? Can we reverse it? Any insights there? Yeah, so I have a few cardiologists that I work with. And all I'll do is generally when I send them off and they say, okay, oh, this guy's got a, an elevated calcium score. We're looking to improve his cardiac function. Well, first of all, we do blood pressure testing. Getting someone's blood pressure under control, getting someone's cardiovascular health in check will massively improve the longevity. And if you check anybody's calcium score, they're going to have calcium. People are out with it at different times and right at high levels of cholesterol. But it, it, it's not one factor that causes everything. It's the whole picture. So for me, it's blood pressure. It's resting heart rate. It's body composition. Even this visual adipose tissue. I don't know why people aren't addressing this. If you have an excessive level of, of visual adipose tissue, that is a major issue when it comes to cardiovascular health. So stuff like that, I tend to more focus on. However, in Ireland, and I think it's in most countries, People are focused on calcium scores, they're focused on, on, on cholesterol, and they want to get it down as low as they can and not focus on the things that are going to keep them healthy and have quality of life 
later down the line. They're too easy for better blockers. They're too easy for statins over here, particularly. And then they have their own implications then on health. Everyone just wants to take a pill, right? Nobody wants to do the work. So talk to me about losing visceral fat, because like, is that different from losing subcutaneous fat? Because I've actually heard some interesting theories and stories around they're, they're, they could be uh, mechanistically different as far as how to lose this. Is it just like, hey, you got to drop body fat and visceral fat will go? Or do you have some like specific strategies on how to drop the visceral fat? Yeah, so this is the, this is the thing. As you know, I've worked with Charles for years. We, we used to teach this course, body procedure modulation. The same thing that I would say stand up, and same thing that don't necessarily stand up when it comes to, to research. However, I think it's important for your listeners to know that adipocytes are actually hormonally active tissue. So your, your fat cells actually... They're hormonally active. Now, what can happen is we make quite a lot of cortisol in our body, but we make a second hormone called cortisol. So, for example, you have dollars over there. I've got euros over here. In the in my body, my body can only use euro. However, if I had somewhere where I could ch- I could use my, take my dollars and change it back into euro, fat tissue is one of those. So, visceral adipose tissue has the enzymatic function to, to convert cortisol back to cortisol. There's a bidirectional pathway. So pe- when people are under a lot of stress, they're going to keep the bureau of the hands open because that's going to change that hormone back into keeping you alive. And whether people believe it or not, your body has one function, one function, and that's to keep you alive today. It doesn't care about your 18-inch or 20-inch arms when you're 70 or whatever. It wants to keep you alive now. So I see people all the time. I, I was laughing at it. I was chatting with a client recently, and... The bone is gone. Like the glutes are one of the biggest muscles in the body. When you have high levels of cortisol for a long period of time, cortisol is a glucocorticoid. We're bringing blood sugar back up again, but it does it mainly. We're breaking down fat, but also muscle tissue. So if you see a girl at a bar with a big fat belly, no triceps, no glutes, he's breaking his own body down to keep him alive from all the stress, from the alcohol, from the poor sleep. So when someone has a lot of visceral adipose tissue, my first question is. What life is he or he or she living to have that body fat deposition? What stress is going on that I can change? Is it alcohol? Is it blood sugar? Is it sleep? And when, when I can find out what the trigger is, that's when it will come down. But you need to identify what that is. And for men, we call that the Apple or the Android body fat deposition. For a woman, they tend to have more of a pear shape or in research, kind of goinoid fat deposition. They don't have the same visual adiposity they tend not to have it in, in the, the center of the body. Women can have it, but it's more common in men. They don't have the cavity as much as men have to put that fat on. But obviously, when we go morbidly obese, it's a little bit different. So visual adipose tissue, one, what's triggering it and what's sustaining it? Is it blood sugar? Is it alcohol? Is it sleep? But the body's going to keep that there because that tissue is helping that body survive in that homeostasis. It's converting that cortisone back to cortisol to help that person manage the stress. One of the areas that interest of mine in uh, metabolism is, you know, there's a lot of people talking about the alkaline acid diet. And, you know, I think we probably know by this point that your food isn't influencing your pH at all. But talk to me a little bit about the influence of, do you, I mean, do you believe, or what do you know about some foods being acidic, some foods being uh, alkaline, and those foods ultimately influencing the body's uh, performance in some way, even if it isn't directly influencing pH. I'm curious if you have any insights on that, because you know when it when it comes to research in the heart, I've actually heard some people like you need to eat more alkaline foods. I was like, well, we know it's not influencing the pH of the blood, but what is it influencing? Yes, and, and that, this is the topic that I've spoke to many physicians about, and Dr. Sarana being one, Dr. Brian Watts being another. Food alkalizing food has little, the very little, if any, impact on on, on the alkalinity of your blood, your your breath work. Your stress, exercise is very acidic to the body. So for me, I, I don't think it has the biggest crossover that people used to think that it has. So for me, I don't think it has a huge crossover at all. Electrolytes, hydration, breath work, these are things that I look for to alkalize the body. And this is the thing, this is the, thing the body needs to be a certain acidity at certain levels. For example, your stomach, it should be a pH of 1 to 3. The older you get, the longer it takes that pH to come back into an acidic nature. So higher frequency meals for older people isn't actually that recommended. For younger people, they can have multiple meals and their their, their, their the acidity of the stomach comes back to where it needs to be. Once you're over 40 or 45 or 50, it takes longer and longer for that acidity to come down. If that acidity isn't where it needs to be. Food isn't going to be broken down correctly. 
sleep, sleep is compromised. That can massively impact on the body's restorative nature of getting the pH where it needs to be in the bloodstream. But I don't think food has as big as impact as people used to believe that it has. Yeah, I agree. And so I was thinking about, I've been researching a little bit about mental stress being one of the biggest influences on acidity, you know, people becoming more acidic and therefore obviously exercise stress is another significant influence. And yeah, I'm curious what, you know, so breathwork is a lever, sleep is a lever, um, but food, as you as you say, is probably a very small influence on actually where the body sits as far as pH. Yeah, no, I say that, but just, just to on top of good quality food, if people are eating shitty McDonald's and takeaway, I definitely believe that deep fried food and, you know, fried food and baths can definitely have, you know, an acidic, acidic an impact on the blood. But I'm talking real quality food is not going to change things too much. So, but that's important to note because I'm, I'm curious about that. Like if I do go out and eat a burger and french fries from McDonald's, that can have an acidifying effect or is it more of a like leaching the minerals? Like what is the mechanism here? Yeah, so this is so a document with Dr. Mark Houston. He's based at the Hypertension Institute. One of the things I had him over in Ireland many years ago, um, I talked to him about, about cheat meals, what we talked about, all right? And what he said, he said, oh, if, in what people do is they, they eat clean all week, and then the weekend they go, hey, you guys, and they have this huge cheat meal of all this junk food. He says, I've tested these people. I've done lab testing on these people. And what happens is, if you're, no, if you're overweight, I'll just start this off, if you're overweight and on the road to weight loss, Every week, have a cheat meal. He has seen inflammatory markers, interleukin 6 and CRP elevate in someone's bloodstream for four to seven days after that cheat meal. Now, what happens after four to seven days? That person has the other cheat meal and then it rolls on. So, the inflammatory markers in the body, I'm not saying that it's it, alkalinity of the blood. I'm saying he showed that if he was testing people after the cheat meal, if they're overweight and they've got a lot of inflammation in the body, that they have inflammation markers elevated above normal for four to seven days. And then seven days happens, they have a cheat meal again, it rolls on. So for me, cheat meals are meals that are outside of the diet. I don't even like to call them cheat meals, but I like dietary breaks or whatever you want to call it. They should have be at least two weeks for beginner people and it could, should always be controlled. We just had a study published in one of the leading psychiatric journals. 5,000 children followed from the ages of 1 to 24. And the researchers measured a, a number of things, but two of the things they measured were their weight and their levels of insulin. And the children who had the highest levels of insulin resistance beginning at age nine were five times, that's 500% more likely to develop bipolar disorder or schizophrenia at risk syndrome by the time they were 24. Wow. They were, they were, so they were five times more likely to be at risk, which means they were showing some worrisome symptoms. They were three times more likely to already be di definitively diagnosed with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. The kids who gained the most weight around the time of puberty were four times more likely to be depressed by the time they turned 24. So we're now talking about the leading causes of disability on the planet. Mental disorders are the leading cause of disability and depression is the number one medical diagnosis. And as so we're talking about insulin resistance and weight in, you know, adolescence being a pretty powerful predictor for who goes on to develop these disorders. And I'm sure you thought about this, Dr. Palmer, but I'm going to ask the question is, why were they getting fat? It comes to mind for me, right? So if a child is over-consuming sugar or over-consuming calories, period, was that a coping strategy? Meaning from the time they were very young, they were experiencing something psychologically challenging or physiologically challenging, traumatic environment, et cetera. And they used, uh, they used uh, food as a coping strategy and that's what made them fat. So is, do you understand where I'm going with that? So like, I'm curious if I'm sure you've thought it through, but I'm, is, is it the type of thing that maybe they already had the predisposition prior and food was their coping strategy and that's why they got fat and that's why they had high insulin levels? Has anyone explored that? So I love that question because that is exactly where I'm thinking. And I, I think it can be both. Yeah. I think it can be, you could be a kid who has a relatively decent life that your family eats crap food 
you're eating fast food all the time. There are no family meals. Everybody just snacks or grazes in front of the television set. And, and the kid is getting crap food at school and everywhere else. And that child may very well go on to develop insulin resistance, obesity, and that is going to set that child up for mental illness, you know, within 10 years, just from that alone. But I think you nailed it with, it's not always so simple. It's not always just people are making the wrong food choices. And so we just need to like wag our finger at them and tell them to make better food choices. Because I do think for some people, people who have, uh, you know, we have an abundance of evidence for this. So people who have adverse childhood events, so that includes abuse, trauma, you know, parental divorce, one of your parents, you know, being in jail, all sorts of things. Um, the more adverse childhood events you have, the more likely you are to have obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. The risk is anywhere from, I think about 25 to 100% increased risk for those. You're about two to three times more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and cancer. And you're much more likely to have all sorts of mental disorders, mental problems, mental symptoms, like 30 times more likely to attempt suicide but you're more likely to have all sorts of addictions and other things. And so what we know is that early stress and trauma can set off a cascade to both metabolic and mental disorders. And one of the big themes of my book is exactly that. I meticulously go through all of the known risk factors for mental illness. And oh, by the way, there are also well-documented risk factors for all of the metabolic disorders too. So, you know, even if we look at an adult, if we look at an adult with mental illness and we stress them a lot through trauma or just, you know, just make their life stressful in some way or another, their mental symptoms are more, more likely to get worse. And that's across the board for all mental disorders every mental disorder can get worse through trauma through trauma or stress. But guess what? All the metabolic disorders can too. So if you've already got pre-existing cardiovascular disease, stress can make you have another heart attack. If you've already got diabetes, stress will make your blood sugars go even higher. If you've already got obesity, stress can make you gain even more weight. Everybody thinks it's because you're eating more but not, it's not necessarily because you're eating more. It's because of the effect of stress on your metabolism. It's taking a metabolic toll. It's actually changing your metabolism. And even if you have the capacity to only eat the same amount of food, you may still very well gain weight just from the stress alone. Yeah. But of course, we all know a lot of people do stress eat and they tend to stress eat junk food. So that just you know, adds insult to injury if a person is doing that. So if we were to look at what's happening metabolically in the brain, I'm sure you have many theories, many potential avenues on how this kind of causes these mental illnesses to express, but I'd be curious to hear what, what it is. So it's actually not so complicated. That was the thing about, that was the thing about my theory that was like really dumbfounding to me is when a cell you know, we, I basically, you know, look at it from all sorts of levels, from broad epidemiological levels, clinically what's happening in individuals. But I, I go all the way to the level of an individual cell, like what is happening in an individual cell when it is metabolically stressed. And there are two main things. If the cell is still alive, but it is metabolically stressed, two things can happen. One is that cell can become underactive because it is metabolically stressed. It doesn't have enough ATP and therefore it just is sluggish in its ability to perform. And an underactive brain cell means that some functions of the brain will be underactive. Right. So that could, res that could result in memory impairment, cognitive impairment, 
that could result in fatigue. It could result in a lack of motivation. That if those areas of the brain aren't firing on all cylinders and they are underactive, those things that you should be able to do, you won't be able to do. But paradoxically, metabolic dysfunction in a cell can actually result in that cell being hyper excitable. And what hyper excitable means is that the cell is firing when it shouldn't. And that results in symptoms that should not be there. And so the easiest example, the easiest example of a hyperexcitable cell to just share with your listeners what I mean is when we look at pain. Um, so a hyperexcitable pain cell is producing the sensation of pain when there is no stimulus actually causing the pain. The nerve is, is kind of short-circuiting, firing in a way that it should not be, and that is producing the sensation of pain. When hyperexcitability occurs in the human brain, whatever, wherever that hyperexcitability is occurring is producing a sensation or an experience that those brain cells are normally producing. So if parts of your brain become hyperexcitable, if, if the anxiety pathways of your brain, for instance, become hyperexcitable, it means that you could have a panic attack out of the blue for no reason because those cells are metabolically compromised, they become hyperexcitable, just like a hyperexcitable pain cell. Similarly, people can have obsessive compulsive symptoms, people can have psychotic symptoms because of hyperexcitable brain cells. Would the only difference be the, the region of the brain? Would that be the primary difference? Yes, the region of the brain. And so the logical question is, well, what would make one region more vulnerable than another? And there are lots of factors that go into it in a similar way to what causes a pain disorder in different people. Some people can have a pain disorder in their arm. Other people can have it in their back. Some of them can have it in their leg. What causes it? Well, an injury in that region of the body can be one factor. When it comes to brain cells, brain cells have a lot of different inputs. They have different hormones, neurotransmitters, and other inputs going to those cells that are all influencing how resilient they are or how metabolically compromised they are. And so depending on the mix of factors that a person has, they are going to preferentially, and some of it may be genetic or epigenetic that you inherit from your parents. And so some people may just be more vulnerable to certain types of symptoms. So depending on the mix of factors that you have, you may get different symptoms. But the good news is that treating a metabolic problem, you don't, you don't actually have to know all of that granular information about what exactly is wrong with that one brain region. You can use broad-based metabolic treatments like diet, exercise, sleep, stress reduction, substance use, you know, elimination, and those broad approach strategies can not only be effective for helping people run marathons or be stronger, you know, weightlifters, but they can actually be effective interventions to heal a metabolically compromised brain. So fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm going to speculate that you've had similar results. You mentioned results with one gentleman having lost a lot of weight and having an incredible uh, change to his schizophrenia. Um, has there been numerous repeated experiences or uh, patients with similar results or is it variable across the board? So, the, you know, in terms of the ketogenic diet, you know, no one intervention works for all people. I just want to say that. And again, it's similar to athletes. If you're training for a, a, an athletic competition, some people follow certain diets with certain macros or certain eating plans, and they work great for the one person, but they may not work great for another person. And so some of it does have to be individualized. But, you know, even though it starts getting complex, I, I want to say there usually is a solution and people right. can usually figure it out. It, it's yeah. not it, you, you're just looking at, at are things improving? If they're not, we're going to modify 
And here are some clearly known ways to mod- make modifications. Right. But there are at least hundreds, if not thousands of patients who have overcome chronic mental disorders using the ketogenic diet. The, the largest case series that we have so far was just published in the last month, actually. It was a case series of 31 patients with treatment-resistant mental illness. So they all had schizophrenia, bipolar, or chronic depression. And again, treatment-resistant. So they'd already tried lots of medications and other treatments, and they did not work. They were all hospitalized at a French hospital and placed on the ketogenic diet. 28 of them were able to do the diet and get into ketosis. So three were not. So we got to take that into account. Of those 28 patients, though, who were able to get into ketosis, 100% of them had at least some improvement in their mental symptoms. And I think 46% achieved clinical remission of illness. Huge. And which is huge, especially not just in treatment resistant, but we're talking about schizophrenia and bipolar And, you know, so for the depression, people might be, oh, okay, fine, whatever. But these are chronic disorders that right now everybody says are lifelong disorders. In the book, I include other examples, though. You know, ketogenic diet is not the only metabol is not the only way to improve metabolism. I list some patients who their primary intervention was to, number one, get off a lot of medications that were impairing their metabolism. And that was step one. And I want to say it was not easy and sometimes it was quite dangerous. So when people have been on medications for years or decades, getting off of them can be really difficult. And I just want to say to your listeners, please don't do that on your own. If you or somebody you know is is, is on lots of med, please do it with a medical professional who can help you do it safely. But that was step one with one of the patients. And step two for her was exercise. So she went from being a chronically disabled patient in and out of psych hospitals, multiple suicide attempts, self-injury to running ultra marathons, competing in triathlons, and like became a high performance athlete and has not had a mental illness in over a decade as a result. She overcame and she was ill for well over, I think probably she was medicated for over 15 years. And so it's not like this was a transient one year thing that that was just fleeting anyway. She was ill for 15 years. Her father, who's a physician, actually, I ran into him, I think maybe a year and a half ago or so. Again, he's a physician. And he like, was telling me how phenomenally well she was doing. She's married, working full time. And he said, you know that you saved her life, right? (laughs) Like she would be dead. She would be dead today if she had stayed in the traditional mental health system on all those meds. And, And so, you know, stories like that, I think, are accessible. These yeah. treatments, these treatments are accessible. You and your listeners already know this, but these things are accessible to people, real people today. Do I need everyone with schizophrenia to become a competitive marathon runner or a competitive weightlifter? No, I don't. But I need those types of strategies, the same kinds of strategies that you and your listeners are using to improve your metabolic health. Right. Those same strategies can help people overcome chronic depression, personality disorders, suicidality, addiction. It, it's interesting. So just to share, because you mentioned addiction in particular, and the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism actually just did a study of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism and found that it was quite powerful. It mm. restored normal brain metabolism, which was one of the things they were looking to do But at the same time, it decreased withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. People had fewer cravings for alcohol. And so they're doing a multi-million dollar study now of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism. These metabolic strategies actually are, they are tangible, real things that are affecting brain function. So my goal for this podcast today is to give you guys a little insight into how to optimally eat for your goal 
and all the other factors you should be taking into consideration when it comes to uh, designing an effective diet nutrition plan. So when it comes to building muscle, everything is protein, right? Protein is is everything. And you guys heard me talk about this. And 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 that's complex. Like I'm, I don't just assume I'm starting with a really high level, and then I'll chunk down and give you guys some deep insight into what I actually mean when I say protein is everything. And so if you if you take it through the lens of what am I trying to get my body to do, right? I'm trying to get my body to accumulate or aggregate more protein, right? Accumulate more literal tissue, which can only happen through amino acids, protein, right? So protein, we eat it, it breaks down into amino acids, and then it builds back up into peptides and proteins in our body. If I'm trying to maximize the, I always comes back to amplitude and duration of that stimulants, right? The peak, like I want to make sure I kind of max it out and then let's keep it on as long as possible because I want to build as much muscle as possible. Well, then I have to be considerate of all the things that allow me to do so. You know, obviously looking to aggregate, accumulate, build as much muscle as possible. There's a lot of stuff that can play into that, such as, well, how much protein are you eating? Right? Are you eating enough protein on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? Right? So you have to make sure you're hitting your daily protein requirements, which is simply one gram per pound on average. I've gone to size two grams per pound and saw no negative effects. In fact, I saw a lot of positive effects, but uh, don't assume that that's best for you because I'll talk about that a little bit more later. The idea of, of the amount of protein needs to be based on demand because just arbitrarily eating more protein doesn't result in more growth. It, do, it can for some people if you're undernourished, but in general, eating more protein doesn't necessarily mean more muscle. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So we want to make sure I'm taking first, just like, hey, how, how often can I get this muscle building or this muscle protein synthesis signal throughout a day? You know, there's a lot of scientists now that are arguing like, do I need three meals or six meals? And the answer is it probably doesn't make that much of a difference for most people. For average people, it doesn't make that much of a difference if you're having three administrations of protein or four or five or six. But oftentimes as your calories go up, there's certainly going to be a requirement to divide it into, into multiple feedings. So, you know, I don't suggest for most people consuming more than 60 to 70 grams of protein in a meal. You could, but I don't think you're going to receive the full benefit. So then if you need to consume 300 grams of protein a day, you're probably looking at at least five feedings per day to divide that amongst the day. And then, so if we're looking at first, let's check boxes, right? First, I need to make sure I'm hitting my protein target for the day and the week and the month. And then I need to go, okay, well, is my body digesting, absorbing, and assimilating this protein? Because just because I eat protein doesn't necessarily mean I, I it gets to where I want it to go. So do I have optimal uh, autonomic nervous state, right? The state of my, my nervous system matters when it comes to digestion, absorption, assimilation. Do I have optimal hydrochloric acid in my stomach? Do I have optimal uh, enzymes? Do I have to, optimal microbiome? Do I have optimal gut health? Do I have optimal inflammation? Do I have optimal hormone status? Do I have optimal um, cellular health? There's a lot of boxes that need to be checked there. And the answer is everyone's different. So when I say optimal, this is not on or off. It's not black or white. It's a sliding scale, right? So it's it's either uh, it's either way really, really good. Like we have people who can eat Pop-Tarts, pizza pockets and grow. And those people are probably very genetically blessed when it comes to all those things that I just said there, you know, digestion, acid and, and enzymes and things like this probably very blessed genetically or had a very, very healthy upbringing. Um, and there's people on the other end who, as I, you know, Charles Pollock would joke, I can have three licks of a dry prune and get fat. And those people are typically maybe a little bit broken metabolically, right? So if we think of uh, all of the things that can happen from the time that I eat a piece of steak to the time that it becomes my bicep, there's a lot of potential breaks in the chain, right? So we have to, as someone looking to optimize our nutrition, think about that. Well, how are we doing, right? One, am I eating enough, right? Great. That's step one. But that doesn't mean you're going to get the results you're after. Are you digesting, absorbing, and then assimilating all of those things? But if you're not, you probably just have expensive trips to the bathroom. So, okay, great. Now, now let's assume that we fixed the, all those, right? We've got the right amount of protein. It's really high quality protein. It's essential. We got all the essential aminos. It's complete protein. It's you know free from toxins. We're eating mostly wild meats, mostly animal products, probably 90% animal products or more. As far as the protein comes from, we know 
definitively animal protein is going to be significantly better than any vegetable sources. Okay, great. We hit all those boxes. What does that mean I'm going to grow? No. Right? Now what else needs to happen? Well, as I briefly said, the state of my autonomic nervous system plays in as well. How well is my body actually stimulating this anabolic cascade, we'll call it, right? The muscle protein synthesis cascade is dependent on a lot of factors in between. So am I one, eliciting a signal when I train? So many people, this is where I, how I created a business or why I created a business. So many people go to the gym and don't actually leave having created a signal for muscle growth. They may have created a signal for fatigue, right? Do 100 burpees, you're going to be tired, but you probably haven't elicited a signal for muscle growth, right? So have you actually created a signal for muscle growth? Now, the way I view this, and you've heard me say this a thousand times, but it's worth repeating, there could be a neurological signal, which is asking the nervous system to become more effective at recruiting more and more units per contraction. There can be a hypertrophy signal, which is tension, damage, and stress. And then there could be a metabolic signal, which is ultimately energy depletion or rate of energy production. So those three signals, or some varying amount of those three signals, has to happen in your workout to, to elicit a signal in the body to respond, right? You need to create the stress or the signal, the external stress, external stress creates an internal response that necessitates an adaptation. If I'm not doing my exercise correctly, that's okay, but you're maybe you're not going to build muscle. And I think this has literally made my business for the last 12 years off this because 98% of the people that I meet are simply not creating the right signal in the gym. You're not choosing the right exercises for you. You're not doing them correctly. You're not doing them in the correct volume, in the correct frequency based on what your body is capable of adapting to, right? Uh, so again, there's a lot of nuance there. Uh, and uh, I've done podcasts on this in the past. I'll do more in the future. I'm literally building a program right now or built a program that's launching April 1st on exactly what I just said. Um, how to choose exercises for your body, how to do them correctly, how to ensure you're doing the right volume and the right frequency, and then how to progress it so that you're ultimately going from you know, wherever you are now to where you want to be. And I call it phase one, because regardless of how long you've been training, the very first phase that everyone should be doing probably once a year is the equivalent of what I used to call primer program, right? But pr this phase one is a little more, well, significantly more extensive than a primer program. A primer program would be a six-week program that basically teaches you new motor patterns. Whereas this is a primer program, but it's also all the other logic and, and the thought process of like, hey, Here's how to actually walk from, you know, choosing the right exercises for your body based on your mechanics through these other steps that I say. Anyways, if you guys are interested in looking for that, look for that April 1st on muscleintelligence.com. Put a lot of work into that one, a lot of videos, a lot of uh, audio, a lot of podcasts, but not the point of today's podcast. If we're not creating the signal, then no matter how much protein you eat, you're not building muscle. So let's make sure that we've checked two boxes now. We've got the box of like, yes, I'm eating the protein. Second box is, hey, am I actually creating signal for muscle building, which is ultimately end-to-end -end tension on the muscle, right? We have to we have to create end tension on the muscle. We have to do that for long periods of time. Think of magnitude and duration again, right? How much tension am I creating and for how long? Uh, and ultimately, am I creating some type of negative stress, some type of eccentric loading, which is mechanical damage, and then some type of me metabolic stress, which is you know, accumulation of some type of metabolites or accumulation of some type of myokines, which are these, these secretory molecules which get released from the muscles. And those things need to happen as a result of the exercise stimulus. Otherwise, I'm just stressing my body, which is not necessarily bad because you're, you're, you are depleting energy, but you're not going to change the way you look. and certainly probably not going to change the way you perform. So, so we've checked those two boxes. Let's assume, great, we've checked both of those boxes. Well, what else is there? Well, we talked... I kind of briefly said this autonomic nervous system thing. And that, and to, in my mind, I, I take an autonomic view of training. I take an autonomic view of the body. It's just like, where's the, the state of my autonomic nervous system? If I'm constantly in a state of high stress, high sympathetic arousal, you're not going to build muscle. Your body's going to be in this constant catabolic flux. You know, catabolic is, is associated with high cortisol, high adrenaline, constantly moving, constantly fast brain body needs to be anabolic, which is the other side of it, which is the parasympathetic rest and digest. So then you have to be able to intervene and be in conscious control first and then unconscious of what's happening at the level of the autonomic nervous system. So if you're someone who's looking to optimize body composition, whether that's build fat or lose muscle, doesn't matter. You first need to intervene and interject with your autonomic nervous system and say, what's the state of my nervous system 
at default, when I'm sitting on my butt on the couch or when I'm sitting in my car, what's the state of my nervous system? Does my nervous system think I'm running away from a herd of hyenas or am I able to like sit here and chill? And, and that really plays in because my body's either going to be breaking down tissue, which is all of the tissues, right? Yes, fat, yes, carbs, yes, protein, which is not ideal. Um, mostly carbs and, pr and protein, less fat in those cases often. Or is it replenishing itself, rebuilding itself so that the next time I go to the gym, I'm stronger and faster and more capable. And if you're spending all day running away from the tribe of hyenas, pack of hyenas in this case, I guess, you're not going to grow. So there's three boxes I have to check. Now, and you guys have heard me talk about this in the past, but what's one of the, you know, if we talk about how do I elicit a parasympathetic stimulus? Well, breathing is top of the list. Sleep is enormous. Food is another one, like having the right amount of food, the right nutrition. You know, obviously it's things like meditation and time in nature and connection with loved ones and uh, so many things we could potentially be doing to improve our vagal tone, right? The tone of the vagus nerve. So these are three boxes we want to check. Then when it comes to optimizing for, for protein synthesis, because my body's constantly breaking down, it's not building up. Then, so if we go back to the beginning, I said, we got to hit the base number of, of protein for the day. That's kind of like base of the pyramid, right? Well, this other one that maybe could be included in that other point, but I wanted to wait a little bit on this one, is this idea of optimizing for the amino acid leucine. And so leucine requires, or your body requires three grams on average of leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Dr. Lane Norton and uh, Dr. T uh, Tom, no, Don Lehman are kind of the pioneers here. And they're, they're the ones who discovered that three grams of leucine is the signal for muscle protein synthesis in the body. It's kind of like, think of it like a light switch, right? It's flipping on this muscle protein synthesis signal. And that's really important. So am I getting at least three grams of leucine? And at the same time, do I have enough what's called substrate amino acids just kind of floating around my bloodstream, right? So if I don't have enough, just call it base level amino acids, which is the obviously breakdown of protein, if I don't have enough, just putting leucine in there won't stimulate the protein synthesis. So I can have both this, you know, amino acid kind of pool and leucine. Now there seems to be other factors that are, that are at play there as well when it comes to this pathway called mTOR, right? So protein synthesis is a signal called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, and it just stimulates this body, your body to like start aggregating or accumulating more protein, which is really interesting. So there's other things at play, and I, I'm not an expert in mTOR. To be honest, I don't know that there's a lot of people who are experts on mTOR. There's an mTOR1, there's an mTOR2. I don't know how they interplay, to be honest. And I do know that one of them is very much dependent on carbohydrate, I meaning you have to have, think of it, I think of it, I think of it, I don't know if it's accurate, but I think of it in terms of like a fuel gauge in the cell. If your cell is depleted of nutrients, then it's much harder to stimulate uh, mTOR, MPS. Or if your cell is replenished and replete with nutrients, then it, it seems to be easier. And this is again my, how I kind of interpret the the science and, and it could be inaccurate. So I apologize if it is, but I'm looking deeper. Um, but right now that's the best I could find. But think of it like, and I used to, I used to use this as a gauge when I was competing. As soon as my muscles felt like they were becoming depleted, I knew that I had elicited a signal in those muscles to, to turn over nutrients faster, right? Produce more energy per unit time. And I also knew that if my muscles felt like they were fatigued, that the chances of me growing were dropping. So I would use that certainly when I was competing as kind of a gauge for how much work I should be doing, volume I should be doing. Because if I'm doing back and all of a sudden I see this 20 or 30% kind of precipitous drop in my ability to do work, I can assume that the muscle now is fatigued or becoming more depleted of glycogen. Because I'm pretty consistent with my performance. It's pretty level, 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 boom, drop, right? And it may not be that drastic, but you know, like, you know, when you're like, okay, I'm, I'm cooked. Either I can't contract in a certain aspect of the range, or I literally can't even do another rep. You know, you know, like, well, how much of a drop off have I seen during my training? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? Is it 50%? That's way too much, right? So like relative to where you were at the peak of the, of the workout. <clears throat> so uh, that's important to just feel as though, where am I relative to my full glycogen state? So when I'm preparing athletes for contests, as an example, 
Uh, I usually just will train them. If I'm training them in person in the gym, we'll train them until we see some type of decline in that body part's ability to perform. And then either we go and do a different body part, which is usually the case whenever you're doing a contest, or if we're not doing a contest, then we'll just maybe end the, in the workout and send them home. Because obviously when we're doing a contest, we want to deplete multiple muscles of glycogen because that's often necessary for fat loss or calorie depletion, calorie expenditure. But off-season, we may not be so... Uh, inclined to deplete more muscle groups, right? Because we want to kind of aggregate more calories and more protein. We want to create the signal. We want to go home so we can do it again often. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.